the the Hanukkah ethic in the life of Yeshua, as we've been talking about, <coughs> excuse me. As we said the last week and, and this week, what I really want to kind of drive home, the, the Hanukkah ethic in the life of Yeshua is one part of it, the main part of it that I want to focus on is that there is a kingdom that doesn't change, that will never end, and is ruled by a king who is faithful always. We looked at in the life of Israel, we've looked at maps and we've looked at timelines and we've done really nerdy stuff and today I want to be inspirational. But we've looked at Israel in the time of the Maccabees in a time that most of us really probably until you started giving Hanukkah a look had no idea even existed. You didn't realize what was going on. And again, we have been, we have had this false impression because depending on where you come from, it's been called the silent years or just the intertestamental period where God was silent, right? Where nothing, and so because God was silent, obviously nothing else was going on until you really start digging into the history and really start understanding what was happening and holy smokes, not, was, not only was there stuff going on, there was a lot of stuff going on. And the most important part of this period, I think for us as Yeshua followers to understand, is that this period gives way and shapes the world that Yeshua is born into. You know, I, I know we have these, we have these ideas about, um, about, sometimes about Yeshua and about, you know, well, like he was, he was above all of the carnal stuff he was above culture and he was above language and he was above politics and he was above all of that stuff because he came from heaven and he was above life ordinary life and while i understand and appreciate the the attempt at respect uh and the genuine respect maybe i think that also does a lot to harm the image of yeshua as we try to connect with him and try to to learn from him and try to be like him and follow him him being a real person in a real place amongst a real group of people with a real language and a real culture real cares real concerns real hopes and dreams and being a a a man who is who was sent by god who was called by god who was birthed of god to revolutionize his world and for that revolution to spread, that kingdom to spread then outside of his world to the rest of the world, we do a massive disservice if we think of him as above all of those things. Well, it doesn't matter what culture Yeshua would have come into. It doesn't matter what language. It doesn't matter what time period. Maybe it doesn't. But the fact is that he did come into a culture. He did live amongst a people in a history, in a place, in a time that were doing their best to love and follow Hashem with fidelity. He did live in a, in a place and a time where there was political unrest, where there was, where there was questions about where is God and does he still love us? And how do we be the kingdom people of God, the Sinai covenant people of God? And, and putting Yeshua above all of that stuff and thinking that he's not affected by that stuff makes him really hard for me to relate to. I'll just be honest. Because you know what? I'm a real person in a real time. And as far as I'm concerned, this time that I'm living is the only time that really matters. Isn't that right? Yeah, we can appreciate history. We can appreciate our ancestors and those that came before us. We can appreciate the future and hope and what our children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren might, might live. But really, the thing that we care most about is right now. This time is the only really important time in human history as far as we're concerned. Because we're the center of the universe. And I say that jokingly, but it's true. And I'm not saying that to smash and, you know, to, to blast anybody. I'm just saying that's, that's the way that we process time. And we process our, our own history and our own story. And 
The idea that all the people, the Jewish people, the Israeli, Israelite people that came before us, the people in Yeshua's time and in Yeshua's day, to think that, this is one of the biggest problems I have with, with supersessionism and, and with, with antinomianism and thinking that the law, the covenant, and all that stuff was done away with, and thinking that the quote-unquote Old Testament was just a means to get us to Yeshua, the, one of the biggest problems I have with that, among many, is that it makes those people that live through those times just a pawn in God's plan. He makes them just a character, a caricature, just to get Yeshua to us. Because somehow we think, in the mind of God at creation, when he thought about the world and humanity and how he would deal with humanity and all the stuff that Hashem had to consider as he began to create. Really, the most forefront thing in his mind and the point of all of it was us today sitting in a building outside of DeRuiter, Louisiana in 2021. Now, did he consider us? Absolutely. Are we important? For sure. But we can't allow ourselves to supersede all the faithful people of Israel that came before us. And when we look at the Tanakh, and, and we, when we call it the Old Testament, it feeds that idea that, well, it was just a means to get, the sacrificial system was a means to, to an end that the, 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 the priesthood was a means to an end. Oh, that temple building, that was just a means to an end until Yeshua would come and fulfill all those things for us. And it's, it's, you can say stuff like that and it's said all the time. The problem is that again, there are real people that brought real heartfelt offerings during that sacrificial system. There are real moms and dads that brought the gift of an animal that they had raised and, and brought it to the altar and confessed their, their gratitude and their thanks to Hashem for the children that he had given them. And that animal that they had sacrificed maybe to raise or they had sacrificed to purchase they gave that animal as an olah, as a complete whole burnt offering, an ascending offering, out of heartfelt gratitude to Hashem. How dare, how dare we are so arrogant to say that, well, that was just, God just used that as a means so that we could have Jesus. There is a, there is a story to Scripture, and everyone that was faithful and lived through those times is precious to Hashem. And their story matters. And the stories they wrote about God matter. The stories that they wrote in our Bible, testifying of who He is and what He did, they matter. And all of these things, the Maccabean, the Hanukkah season, those people mattered. And I think that this season of the, inner te the Hellenistic period, the, the beginnings of the, the Second Temple period, shaped the world that Yeshua was born into. We have this weird, or maybe I have this weird, I'm not going to put it on anybody else, because I'm weird in ways that some of you are not. <laughs> Baruch Hashem. And I couldn't explain it even if I tried. <clears throat> but sometimes we have these ideas that <clears throat> even in Yeshua's run-ins with everyday people in his life, you know, I mean, not, and not to get too, you know, too base, but Yeshua ate and slept. He went to the bathroom. And and said the blessing afterwards by the way thank you God that, you know the holes that open open and the holes that are supposed to not open don't open and you know it's a beautiful blessing especially when you get older, especially when you get older Mike said <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, 
And yeah, and I always think, you know, we clown the rabbis for going like, why have a prayer blessing God after the bathroom? Well, because if you have something that's supposed to open and it stops opening, or something that's supposed to close and it remains open, you, you have you have a little bit of an issue. And so Baruch Hashem, that the openings in our body stay open when they're supposed to, I mean, it's a, I'm sorry. But Yeshua... Yeshua, yeah, Yeshua was a baby, you know, and and we again we get disconnected by his divinity or you know whatever we want to talk about all of that. We get disconnected and we say that Yeshua never sinned. And man, I'm fixing to jump off here, but I'm I'm just going to kind of skirt right across it and then we'll move on to something else. But we, we, I don't want to debate about, you know, Yeshua sinning and what is sin and all that. But you think about a baby and all of the random stuff that happens around a baby. You, do you mean to tell me that Yeshua never cried? Well, that's not sin. I know, but I'm saying he, he was this perfect, like, just slept and was just... I, he, he, yeah, did he throw a tantrum or two? Did he throw down a little, you know, wooden or stone something that his dad had carved for him? I mean, did, did he, you know, did he, did he sigh and roll his eyes as a prepubescent teenager when, when Miriam said, hey, go do that? You know, I mean, I just, is that stuff sin? I, you know, my point is that we by focusing on Yeshua's divinity and, and all that stuff, we disconnect him from being a real person in a real time, living with real people. And we think, well, he only healed so that people would think he was the Messiah. He only healed. And, and sometimes we don't consider the fact that Yeshua loved the people that he touched. He knew them. He knew, uh, they followed him. He was their rabbi. He was their teacher. He was their shepherd. And he loved them and he was invested in them. Real people in a real time. Did Yeshua have us on his mind? As we say in songs, say and of course, as we say all the time, you know, songs are not good doctrine. So songs don't make good doctrine. But we say, you know, when, when Yeshua was on the cross, I was on his mind. Was I? Probably, but... I wasn't in place of people that were standing there. You know? Yeah, and the torturing part, you know, takes up a lot of mental space. But my, my point is that is not to minimize the fact that Yeshua and God cares about us. It's it's to it's to focus us on back on the fact that He that everything in His life in this time, we can't discount it from being for His time. That Yeshua came and spoke to His time to the people that were there moving around, milling around Israel, doing their best, Roman, Hellenistic, whatever, Pharisee, Sadducee. He speaks to his time. We get to enjoy connecting to his sayings and his teachings, but it is for his real, real time. If the people of his time didn't understand what he was saying, we have no, we have no, we, we, we don't even start don't even pass go don't collect $200 if, if, if what Yeshua says is not acceptable to the people that he's saying it to and we think oh well they didn't understand this was obviously for us man how wrong how wrong do we have it so I want to talk today about that was all introduction <laughs> I want to talk today about um about the Hanukkah ethic in the life of Yeshua, again, the last part of this, and specifically the gospel of the kingdom. Again, like we said last week, the gospel is not come to me and get saved and get rescued from your own sin. That's not what Yeshua said. The God, don't, don't get mad at me. That's not what Yeshua proclaimed as the gospel. That's our gospel. But if we listen to his words, he said over and over, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. And we talked about this at, at length. I'm not going to go back and, and beat the dead horse. But 
the idea that we do need to repent. We do need to make shuvah. We need to turn back towards Hashem. And we need to get activated in the kingdom. Jeff Morton says that salvation is activation. And I love that. I think he said I said it, but I think he said it originally. Salvation is activation. And yet for so many of us and for so many of our friends and family that will sit in church pews tomorrow, salvation is the point. It's the end. All of this life and all of this stuff has only been to get us to Jesus, to get us saved so that we have our ticket paid on the heaven train. And yet Yeshua teaches a different gospel. That, yeah, obviously you have to repent. You have to repent so that you can be activated and, and, and effective in the kingdom. So Hanukkah is the festival of lights, the festival of dedication. So I want to focus on the light today and how we spread the everlasting kingdom and how we spread the gospel of the everlasting kingdom by being the light. So again, real Baptist, that's my roots. Don't, don't hate on me. Three points, a couple of scriptures, then we'll go eat. <laughs> so I want to start in John 8. As we referenced this last night. And in, chapter, in John chapter 8, Johannine 8, is the, the infamous story about uh, the woman caught in the act of adultery, right? And there's, there's so much good stuff there, but we, we won't take time to read it today. We're going to start in, excuse me, in uh, verse, verse 12. Well, no, actually. Let's start in verse 10 of John chapter 8. Everyone's dropped their stones and walked away. In verse 10, and I'm reading from Trio Life, it says, Straightening up, Yeshua said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Yeshua said. Go and sin no more. This is the day the woman in the, caught in the act of adultery got saved. Well, she's a daughter of Israel. For all intents and purposes, it's going to make some people mad. Sorry, not sorry. She's already saved. She's part of the covenant. Again, we, you can send me angry emails later. She's a part of the covenant people of Israel. She's a daughter of Israel who, whatever this thing is going on, maybe has made some bad decisions, maybe has had to make some bad decisions for, for, for survival, whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is, whether or not she got saved today the kingdom was expanded into her life today. She became an activated citizen of the kingdom that Daniel spoke about. The kingdom that the Maccabees fought for today. Yeshua didn't say confess your sin. He didn't say all any of those things. I'm not blasting those things. I'm, I want us to focus on a different side of this whole thing. He said go and sin no more. Stop it. I've quoted this before, and I, I this, you guys, when 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 it is time for us to go back to Israel, I I want everybody in this room, everybody in the sound of my voice, I want Hanok and Mike Clayton to have the biggest Israel tour they've ever had in their lives, because you all need to go. Kids, no kids, whatever, I don't care. Put them in a, I don't know, give them to somebody for the week or two weeks, whatever, I don't know. You all need to go. We, we stood in this little shop in the old city called the Shurashim Shop. Shurashim means roots. If you've been to Israel, you've probably been there. Uh, Moshe and Dove Kapinski, two brothers that run this shop. It's world famous. Everybody that goes to Israel, I think, goes through Shurashim Shop. Um, from all backgrounds. Ron, what, what year did y'all go to Israel? 
04 and went to Shurashim. I mean, when, when did y'all go? 13, went to Shurashim, right? And you go to Shurashim and it's a, you know, it's a store and there's paintings and all the beautiful stuff, but, but there's Moshe Kempinski. And he talks to every group that comes in. Yeah, no, it's, it's half the size of this room. And everybody's crammed in there and it's wonderful. And Moshe made a statement when we were there. I don't remember which time, which day. But he said, here's a difference between you Christians and us Jews. Now, all of us on the trip, we're all Hebrew roots. We're not Christians. <laughs> we're Hebrew roots. We, re- we reject Christianity. And Moshe says, the difference between you Christians and us Jews is that for you, sin is something you are. And he said, for us, sin is something we do. Somebody needs to write that down in your notes. And if you don't have something to take notes on, we have Sukkot notebooks still in the front. For Christians, sin is something you are. And for the Jewish people, sin is something you do. So I find it really interesting that Yeshua says to this woman, go and stop doing what you've been doing. That's how you become restored as a daughter of the kingdom, as a daughter of Israel. Stop doing what you've been doing. He doesn't go to her root cause. By the way, if you watch the news at all, one of the phrases I never want to hear again after 2021 is root cause. But that's a side, side note. He doesn't go to her root cause. He doesn't psychologically analyze her. He doesn't try to figure out why she's living this lifestyle. Is it because we need to heal her background? And, and I'm, listen, I have, a, I have a toxic background in some ways. I'm not delegitimizing that. Some, many of the things that some of us deal with as adults is a result of background. And, and the way we grew up and we were raised, trauma, all not taking away from that. But what Yeshua does say is just, is just go and stop doing what you've been doing. And then he says in verse 12, Yeshua spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. Or ha'olam. The one who follows me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then I love this, it's just so like Jewish. And the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself, so your testimony is not valid. You can't just say, I am, and that's the, that's the point of it. And Yeshua answered them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh, but I do not judge anybody. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, because it is not alone, but I with the Father who sent me. So fa- It's such a fascinating inter- exchange. Yeshua is the light of the world. He says. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. That's the only place that that proclamation is made. Not to, not to de-emphasize it, but it's only in John chapter 8. It's the only place that Yeshua calls himself the light. Matthew chapter 5 we've covered this so and these scriptures have been read ad nauseum but I don't want you to lullaby on me verse 13 Yeshua says you are the salt of the earth but if the salt has lost its flavor how shall it be made salty again it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men you First of all, let me ask you this. What does it mean for Yeshua to be the light of the world? And, and I mean, just give me your, give me your honest kind of gut, gut response. What, is, what does it mean to you that Yeshua is the light of the world? Path to what? 
To life? Okay. What? Okay, teaching the Torah. Psalm 119 calls Torah the light, right? What else? Goodness amidst evil. Okay, that's good. What else? Destination. Destination? Okay, what else? What does it mean? The person of Yeshua claiming to be the light, what does that mean? It spells darkness, all right? Illumination. Illumination, right? He allows people to see the truth. Okay. Opening the eyes to see truth, illumination, right? When we say, when we proclaim Yeshua as the light of the world, we're saying all those things. What else are we saying? Look to him, right? Be, reflect him. Be, be on fire by him. That he's salvation. That he is the way out. He's the path to the way out of whatever you're dealing with, right? Not only for people to get saved, but also when people who are believers are struggling with a hard time, what do we tell them? Oh, look, to, look to Jesus. Look to Yeshua. He's the light that will lead you out of this dark place in your own life. So, he's, so all of those things are encompassing. Now, with that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 5. Verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 14. You, everybody say me. And then I know y'all hate doing this, but I love asking you. Look to the person on the side of you and say you. You. You are the light of the world. Well, but wait. I thought he was the light of the world. The, The light is telling us that we are the light. You are the light of the world. And yeah, we know sitting on a hill, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But how many times do we just skip those first four words? Not, I mean, we read them, but we don't think about them. You are the light. You. That's heavy. Because all the things that we just said about Yeshua, I think Yeshua thinks those things about us. Or that's his hope for us. That's the, that's the Father's. That's the Father's hope for us. So Yeshua gets in a lot of trouble because he says things like, I'm the Son of God, I'm the light, I am, I am, I am. And people go, you're making yourself God. And he's like, what he actually has a confrontation with with some of the pharisees and he says your own writings say you are gods is there danger in thinking that we could be little messiahs maybe for some but i don't but but i think that's the the point is that we're, Yeshua came to spread kingdom to us so that we would spread kingdom to each other. And then he takes off. I'm out. He, just, he, he takes off and he goes, okay, it's up to you guys. Make me proud. As we lit the Hanukkahs last night, as you've lit them in your homes each night, he says, you, you don't light a candle or a lamp and put it under a basket instead you put it on a lampstand a menorah and it gives light to everybody in the house and we experienced that every night of Hanukkah and we experienced it last night that every family that lit a Hanukkah the light grew and the darkness was less so why do we not think of ourselves as the light well, one reason is I think that we think it might be kind of sacrilegious, right? To put ourselves on the same level as Yeshua. But here's the thing. Yeshua was, he was accused of putting himself on the same level as God. To which Yeshua said, nay, nay. There's one who is good, right? Right? 
So then if he's not putting himself on the same level as Hashem, what does it mean for him to say, I and the Father are one? There's an, there's an, there's echad, there's unity, there's oneness in motivation, in purpose, in character. The, the gospels tell us that Yeshua grew in wisdom or knowledge and stature with God and man. In other words, he put in some work. He put in some time. He put in some study. He put in some, some, some devotion, some aloneness, some thinking. And he became one whose character was the same as Hashem. He, was a, he became a Zadik. Just like all of the other Zadikim before him, he came to be a righteous one who emulated and lived the character of Hashem in his life. Isn't that what we all hope for? Isn't that what we all want? So you see, you can say, I and the Father are one without the heresy of claiming, well, there's only one Yeshua, like how dare we claim to be like him? But, but that's kind of the point, is to be like him. The, kind of the point is to be his disciple, his Tamid. So spreading light, spreading the kingdom, first of all, we have to be disciples. And I have a whole lesson I've done, I, I did it, I think it was last year, I've done it a couple times, on being a disciple, a Talmid, T-A-L-M-I-D, Talmidim, plural. What does it mean to be a Talmid in Judaism in the first century? What does it mean to be a disciple, to have a rabbi in the first century in Judea? It means that the rabbi believes that if he takes you as his student, he, he takes you as a student because he believes you can be like him. That should revolutionize the way we think about discipleship. The rabbi only takes students who he believes can be like him primarily can understand and interpret Torah like him and then can apply it like him because the rabbi wants his particular yoke his particular interpretation or his group's interpretation of the Torah he wants it to be spread through the people of Israel and so he's looking for students who can come and be like him, that he can multiply, who can help him to spread his interpretation in halakha, or the, the, the traditional, the way he walks and interprets uh, Torah throughout the rest of Israel. The whole point of being a disciple is to be like the rabbi. Yeshua even says, one is the student and then he becomes the teacher. A teacher's not greater than his master, but he becomes the teacher. And by becoming like that rabbi, you've also become like that rabbi's rabbi. And that rabbi's rabbi's rabbi. And the whole beautiful tradition that has been passed on from teacher to Talmud. To be a disciple of Yeshua boy there's a lot of sticky stuff today I didn't plan on that. see I thought it was going to be really Baptist and really clean and simple and it's turning out not to be at all <laughs> to be a disciple of Yeshua you have to be a disciple of the people that discipled Yeshua see We want to be all first century. And we want to be all, we all want to be first century Jews. Well, maybe not all of us, but that mindset that like that's when it was real. 
in the first century. That's when faith was real and it was authentic and it was true. Not this cockamamie stuff we've made up today. But if we want to be real, authentic, first century style believers, Paul had a rabbi. Shaul had a rabbi. His name was Gamliel. Yeshua did not grow in the stature with God and man by osmosis. He studied and studied with people and studied from people. And we know, this is pretty much settled fact, except for the anti-Semites, we know pretty much beyond the shadow of a doubt that Yeshua was a Pharisee. Shock and awe, shock and awe. We made this point when we taught through the silent years in the Gospels that these are the people that Yeshua's around. These are the people that he lives with. These are the people that he's born into. These are the people that he fights with. Outside of the priesthood, which was corrupt as all get out because they had been bought by Herod. We talked about this. Yeshua's only other real run-ins they're not with average everyday Israelites. They're not even with the Romans. Who is Yeshua fighting with? The Pharisees. Why? Because you fight with the people you love. You fight with your family. You fight with the people closest to you. If he was a part of the Pharisee tradition, that means that he had a rabbi. And if you if you be willing to do the, the innocent intellectual work and put the teachings of Yeshua against teachings of his contemporaries and those that had just come a couple generations before him, maybe disheartening for some folks, I'm sorry, but the vast majority of things that Yeshua said are not new. Most of the things he said he did not come up with on his own. I hope that doesn't take away from the authenticity of Yeshua. I hope what it does is it bolsters his authenticity as a part of the tradition, the faithful tradition that has been taught in Israel. If you want to find out more about this, look up Hillel, Beit Hillel, the house of Hillel. Because in Pharisaic Judaism in the time, there's two main houses, Beit Hillel, the house of Hillel, Beit Shammai, the house of Shammai. And we've told this story before. I never tell it exactly right. Forgive me, you can go find it. But the kind of the, the ethic of each of these houses is that someone comes to, to Shammai and says, I want to learn the Torah. And he goes like, stand on one foot and recite the Torah while I hit you with a stick or something. Like it's something crazy. And that same guy goes like, I'm not doing this. That's crazy. There's got to be a better way. And he goes to Hillel and Hillel says, why do you want to learn the, the Torah? Love God and love your neighbor. That way you fulfill the Torah. This is, this is years before Yeshua comes on the scene. Because Yeshua had a rabbi who had a rabbi. He was a disciple. Now, am I saying we all ought to go read Hillel and be a disciple of Hillel? Well, kind of. <laughs> If, it, if that kind of thing sparks your fancy, that interests you. Yeshua's teachings are a condensation of the, the teachings of Hillel. I'm just trying to give you some context. No, you don't have to go out and be a disciple of Hillel. What I'm saying is that being a disciple means that you are the product of everything that came before you. And Yeshua's point in choosing us, his privilege in choosing us is that he believes you can be like him. That's the point I want to get across. Will we ever actually be like him? You know what? I used to say, no way. But you know what? Some of us might. Yeah, in moments. Because let's be completely honest. I mean, let's just really be super transparent with ourselves and with each other how much gross sin are you involved in in your life I'm not asking anybody to raise your hand and tell me I'm just saying think about think about this 
How much gross sin are you involved in? How much outright disobedient, I read it in scripture and yet I go do it anyway, type of sin are you involved with in your everyday life? I know the answer. For the vast majority of us, probably every one of us, the answer is not a whole lot. We don't, we don't want to say that though because that sounds, it sounds what? You know what it sounds to me like? It sounds like all of our years of church training and scripture training and prayer meetings and prayer lines and worship and hearing prophets and all the stuff, Bible study and Sunday school and VBS and now Torah. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like that's worked. <laughs> it sounds like the word of God and the family of God, the church and all that. It sounds like it has molded us into people that look a little bit like Yeshua, that looks a little bit like the book that we study, that look a little bit like the God that we serve. Isn't that the point? <laughs> Hallelujah! It, it's working! But you see, when sin is something you are, then it can never be good enough. You'll never really be like Yeshua because he had no sin in him we have sin in us we are sin but when sin is something you do do you know that your heart follows your actions you ever get up in the morning and don't feel like doing anything is there ever a morning when I get up and do feel like doing anything <laughs> But what, what's the best piece of advice? What do you tell your kids when they get up and they don't feel like going to school or don't feel like doing anything? What do you tell them? Get up and start moving around. You'll feel better. My dad used to tell me, Dad, I think I'm half dead. Get up and start moving around. You'll feel better. And you know what happens? You feel better. Because your heart follows your actions. So here's a little thing that Judaism is beautiful about. If you have a, 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 an area of your life that's sinful, that's destructive, that displeases, that displeases Hashem and is causing it, hey, try stop doing it. You think, but, yeah, but I'm addicted to it. It's in my heart, and I'm, and I'm not downplaying addiction. I get it. It's real. But it, these things that are in our, I just can't stop. But just try stopping. And I, I tell you what will happen is that eventually your heart will change. Start doing the opposite thing. And your heart will change. Your desire will change because your heart follows your actions. I feel like this is really good stuff. Is it? Okay. All right. <laughs> I'll encourage myself. So in order to spread kingdom, we need to be disciples. True disciples. And you know what? For lack of turning anybody off or making enemies, we, we, should, we should be reading the sages. We should be reading. Yeshua is a product of not only the Torah, but also of the oral tradition that had come before him. Because this is what makes the culture that he lives in. So you know what? We should be studying stuff like this. Baal Hatarim. Some of you are going like, what in the world is that? And where do you find that stuff? Oh my gosh, there's so much out there. It's so overwhelming. You know what there is? Because it's beautiful. I don't have... Dang it, I don't have all the stuff I thought I had. Um, yeah, anyway. Ba'al Hatarim, Sefer HaChinuk, the Kitsur Shukhan Shuk, you know, all, the, all these writings that we have access to, they're all things that, that was in the mind of the Jewish person in Yeshua's day. And again, he called us because he believed we could be like him. Does that, are you saying that we all ought to be Jews? No, I'm not saying that. But we all ought to, we could do with maybe thinking a little more like a Jewish person. All right. So first of all, disciples of. We have to be disciples of. The whole point of being a disciple is that I want to be like my rabbi because one day he's not going to be here and, and the world needs to know what he's about. Second part of this, point two, if you're taking notes. As we become disciples of, we also become representatives of. Oh, that's so-and-so's disciple. Oh, that's so-and-so's disciple. Rav so-and-so, Rabbi so-and-so. 
I love talking to Hanok about his rabbi. He, has, he had a rabbi that taught him. And it's such admiration and respect and, and it's beautiful because rabbis are, are in some ways similar to our pastors in some ways different. They're not just caring for the needs of the people. They are active teachers going, no, we do it this way. <laughs> no, we don't do it this way. And their job is to shape and form the people that entrust themselves to them. And you become representatives of your rabbi. Just a couple of, 2 Corinthians 5.20, it says, therefore, which we didn't read why there's a therefore, but there's a reason there's a therefore. We are ambassadors, ambassadors for Messiah, making, God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Messiah, be reconciled to Hashem. How are we doing in that camp? Not to imply that we're failing miserably. I mean, that could be an implication. That's not my heart. How, because sometimes we're doing really well in that. Sometimes we are failing miserably. But let's, let's just take a quick inventory. Being ambassadors of Mashiach because God, Paul says, is making his appeal through us. Who else did Hashem make an appeal to the people through? Yeshua. See, you can't get away from this idea that we're supposed to be like him. God is making his appeal through us. Now, can God just, in the twinkle of an eye, oh, that's Santa Claus. Can God just, can God just tractor beam to somebody who's never heard of him, doesn't care, doesn't whatever? Can God just bingo, bango, speak to somebody? Yeah, absolutely he can. He's, he's God, he can do what he wants. But most of the time, he's not going to do that. You know why he's not going to do that? Because there's a bunch of us running around. And we're supposed to be doing that. God is making his, his he's imploring, he's, he's making his invitation to humanity through us. Through us, not, in, and this is so important. The reason why I really kind of stress being a disciple of the rabbis' rabbis is because this can this is, again, this can get real sticky. We can make it sound like, oh, well, again, like the tradition we have, like, oh, well, we have now Yeshua then. We got to go tell everybody how to, how to live and how to act, including the Jew. Inclu we got to go set Israel straight because now we have Yeshua. What we need to remember, and this, again, hurts our feelings, steps on our toes, is that God's plan to interface humanity goes through Israel period full stop you are grafted in to the root and Israel is still has been is today and will always be the witness and the image of Hashem the primary image of Hashem in the world what that means is by becoming a student of our rabbis, rabbis, we join ourselves with Israel. Doesn't mean that we come culturally Jewish. It means that we start to think like Yeshua thinks. Because according to him, it's how God thinks. <laughs> it means that we begin to think how he thinks. We begin to understand Hashem and the world and our relationship to it in the way that he understood it. And that way we become a student of the sages and the people of Israel. We become disciples of Israel. We do it the way the Bible has instructed us to do it. And is that we come Israel's way. Because what we've tried in the last 2,000 years has not worked. We want the Jewish people to come the church's way. The problem is that's not in scripture anywhere. The scriptural model is that everyone who is not an Israelite who comes to knowledge of Hashem, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, goes through Israel. And having Yeshua should not be an excuse for not going through Israel. Having Yeshua should be the reason we go through Israel. 
Having Yeshua doesn't bypass Israel. Having Yeshua forces us even more towards Israel. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, I therefore, a prisoner of Hashem, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. And we focus on the calling. The call, I don't know how many sermons I've preached about call, the call of God, the anointing, the anointing. We focus on the call, but again, just the next little phrase in the verse with all humility and gentleness listen <laughs> I have seen the anointing and you probably have to do some wild stuff let me say this I've seen the anointing everybody got that do some wild stuff you probably have to one day A preacher was preaching under the anointing and his microphone stopped working was cutting in and out and the worship leader choir leader it was his job to make sure the sound was working and the microphone was working and you know all the tech stuff because the anointing however strong it is is not stronger than audio video equipment or whatever <laughs> sorry I'm not making fun I'm yeah, I kind of am. <laughs> Who said, yeah, you are? <laughs> I'm not making fun of the anointing. I'm making fun of the way we treat it. He was in a fiery tumult of preaching the word, and his microphone started cutting in and out. And so he ripped it off his head and threw it across the front of the room and turned to the choir and said you get me the the choir leader said you get me a microphone right now I don't ever want to have to have this happen again (laughs) the calling which you have been called with all humility humility and gentleness side B to that story is that later on the choir director went was, he was highly upset, embarrassed, obviously. You just got embarrassed publicly in front of about six, eight hundred people. And the pastor's wife came to him and said, Now listen, don't be upset. That was just the anointing. Just give me something to hit my head on. Listen, I, I get excited sometimes and I say stuff I shouldn't say. No. <laughs> I think. I don't know. I mean, it feels like it. I get the sense every once in a while. That's not the anointing. That's me being excited and probably the filter coming off a little too much. <laughs> and saying what I really, really believe that usually I try to keep kind of cloistered because I don't think most people can handle it. That's what that is. <laughs> In this case, it wasn't the anointing. It was a pastor being excited and the filter coming off a little too much and him revealing who he really is. With all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace anybody under the sound of my voice or anybody under the sound of my voice that knows somebody that argues and tries to cause dissension because of the anointing because of their calling because of however they want to say it you need to send them a nice little hope you're doing well card praying for you love ya BT dubs Ephesians chapter 4 1 through 3 (laughs) eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace that's our call as representatives 
Thirdly and lastly, we're disciples of, we're representatives of, see, it's feeling kind of Baptist. Disciples of, and I'll close with this. There you go. There's my Baptist phrase. But I'm not. Neither is anybody that ever says that. Thirdly, representatives of, we become partners with. We've talked about this a little bit already, but 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 12 talk about fellowship. Look, see what just happened? I said, and I'm closing with, and people started to get like, okay, well, let me put, isn't that funny? I love the psychology of people. It's so great. <laughs> um, partners with. If, if you've been nervous by this talk about like we should be like Messiah, we're little Messiahs, whatever, please don't misunderstand me as saying we take his place or we supersede him or the, because, we, because we are supposed to be like him, then we have no need for him. That is not what I'm saying. We tend to think the same thing about Israel. Oh, well, we have this so we don't need them. That's not it. We, in order to be like them and be a student of them, we need them even more every day. As we, de- as we unlearn and we deprocess from who we were and we are transformed into the new, the new creation. We need them even more. We need Israel even more. We need the Jewish people even more. We need their teachings and their understandings and their, their, their we need it even more. We need the life of Yeshua and those who taught him even more. As we become partners we have, First Corinthians says that we have fellowship with Messiah. Fellowship indicates partnership. That somebody's call may be, calling may be in specialization or whatever, may be singing. Well, I, I, listen, I know so many people that are called to lead worship or called to worship, quote unquote, that are nasty, horrible, awful people. I, that's my experience because I've been in music my entire life and some of the most backbitey, hypocritical just nasty people are people who are called to worship ministry <laughs> the, we have a bunch of we want a bunch of specializations in our call well my call is to this my call is to prayer my call is to this my call and there may be you know what a way that you connect with Hashem personally that that is your way that's that's great and that's fine and you should do that because the body needs worship leaders and prayer leaders and all we need we need all of you but fundamentally we are a partner with Hashem and a partner with Messiah in spreading this kingdom that will never end this kingdom that is here and Yeshua said it's not only here and near you it's in you the only way it comes out is if we do what we're supposed to do. The light. The light of Hanukkah, the light of Messiah, the light of the Gospels. There are beings with special gifts, talents, and experiences. And I, this is an article and I love it. It says, what is our responsibility for the privilege of living in this world? Think about that question. We have a privilege to live in this world. We take it for granted. We take every morning for granted. That's why I love the Modeani prayer that, that, that blesses Hashem for returning us, returning our soul, waking us up anew, His gracious. What is our responsibility though? When, when, we're, when Hashem wakes us up every morning, we wake up not only with the privilege of being alive, but with a responsibility. Because so you can't have rights or privileges without responsibilities so we get in trouble legally and politically is that we want a bunch of rights but we don't want the responsibility here because i haven't said anything else really jarring today i'll say this people want the right to sleep around with whoever they want to but they don't want the responsibility of raising children see rights and responsibilities does that kind of clear it up you want the, everybody wants the rights to do whatever they want, but we don't want the responsibility that comes with that. And responsibility is the counterbalance. It's the accountability to that. You want the right to go out and drink every night and party all night? Cool. 
then you have the responsibility of the consequences. It's just the way you lose your job, you lose your home, whatever. Lose your relationships. We have a responsibility for the privilege of living in this world. Every one of us has the capacity to bring love and joy, care and compassion, and inspiration and motivation to others. You have the capacity to bring love and joy, care and compassion, inspiration and motivation to others in this world. What would it mean to light the world around you with great hope? What would it do to your world to light your world with hope? Say like this, this, this next couple weeks, I'm gonna focus on hope in my world, spreading hope. And when I ask somebody, how's it going? And they go, oh, well, I'm just, you know, like we all do. Oh, just busy. I did it this morning. Oh, just, man, so, so busy. What if we make it our job to go like hope? I'm going to spread hope. That's the light that I'm going to shine. And we practice infusing our world with hope in all different dynamics. It doesn't mean you deny the reality that, that sometimes things are hard. But hope. What would it mean that the world would look like, uh, the world around you would have great desire? How many people do you know, yourself maybe included, are just existing? Are just surviving? Just kind of keeping up with this imposed schedule? You know, we're all under an imposed schedule. Sometimes we create it, sometimes it's created for us. But a lot of people, if not in this room and watching my live stream, in your life, they are just existing, keeping up, just trying to be rested enough for the next obligation in the schedule. We're not enjoying life. We're not enjoying opportunity. And we don't have any desire. For a lot of people, we had desires at some point those of you who are young you still have desire you're full of desire great but I'm talking to people who once had a desire who don't have a desire anymore because we came to a place where we realized that work and home and kids and family and, and, and fellowship and church and all, all the other things they suck up so much time I don't have any time for my desire am I talking to anybody else or just to myself Okay. Either way. It needs to be said that we, desire has been snuffed out, not by sin or not by anything, bad habits or anything. It's been snuffed out because priorities change. And you know what? Sometimes priorities have to change. You got young kids, you're taking care of an elderly parent, you're doing whatever. Sometimes it just is what it is. But what about we be people that focus on desire you know what out of how, however well I know most of you in this room and even some of you online I don't know a lot of your desires that's not something we talk about why not why don't we talk about desire why don't we sit back and let each other dream and just go like if everything was pushed aside who do you want to be who do you envision yourself as a person? If everything, if you could reprioritize your life, what desire, what's your desire? What do you want to do? What feeds you? What invigorates you? You know, because we have stuff that drains us and we have stuff that invigorates. Some of us get drained by peopling. Peopling is a verb. It's what we've done all this week. And some people right now are not doing well legitimately because they've peopled too much. And if you're one of those, you understand what I'm saying. It's okay. There's some stuff that drains us and there's some stuff that feeds us and fuels us. Y'all, you all may think that I'm really social and stuff. Well, probably not. Y'all don't. But some people may think I'm really social and stuff. You know what fuels me? Being on a tractor on a bush hog by myself with no questions, 
nobody to talk to, nobody to explain theology to, nobody to talk about the wonders of creation to. Sometimes I don't care. I know, gasp, hiss, boo. Sometimes I don't have the energy, I don't have the capacity. But we don't talk about what, what is your desire. What would you do if nothing else mattered? Because you know what? Life is short. And the world is, doesn't care about your desire. You know where your desire has to be stirred? Right here with kingdom people. What would it mean to light the world with hope, desire, with possibility? <laughs> any, any of these things feel like water to a thirsty soul? They do for me. What would, the, what would it mean to light the world with possibility? We're so quick to say why that couldn't happen. Why that's not possible. Well, you know your history. We're so often told why things can't happen. Well, you know, it's not really one of your strong suits. Well, you know, you need this skill set in order to be you know, you, we're always told why our desire and why, why our passion, why the hope that we have can't happen. Why can't the kingdom that never will fail, why can't it be spread? Why can't we establish it right here in Derrida, Rose Pine, Beauregard, Vernon Parish, South Louisiana, in the middle of nowhere, in the piney woods? Why can't it be established wherever you live or wherever you are? Why not? Well, because the governor this and because the political this and because this and that and, and because I'm timid and I don't speak and we find all the excuses why things are not possible. What about we be people that spread the light of possibility? Because the kingdom's not only and solely about getting people saved about getting people repentance it's about what do those people do once they're citizens of the kingdom that's where the work really starts and I want to be a person who spreads the light of hope of passion and of possibility